0: Maya Angelo once said, We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Growing is an integral part of nature, of humans, and of our lives. Many aspects of our growth also involve the process of healing and unlearning, but it is important to note that we can't do this alone. Bill Hooks states this beautifully in her quote: rarely, if ever, any of us are healed in isolation. Healing is an act of communion. We hope through this episode and through our chaotic series, you are able to find the strength and communion needed in your own journeys.
1: Hello and welcome to your favorite hour of the week with the three chaotic queers.
2: That's the last time you all hear the nice little um, jingle. But howdy, queer kin and chaos lovers. As you may know, this is the fourth and final episode of the Three Chaotic Queers podcast mini-series. And over the last few months, we've had a truly incredible time hosting this series, and we really hope that you've all enjoyed playing witness to our odyssey. (laughs) I love that. Um, Who knows? I
1: might cry tears of happiness if I think too hard about this being our last episode. Um, but it's a special one. Uh, since this is our Venture and Validate episode, it only makes sense that this be a party of emotions. So bring them to the table if you so wish to. Uh, we encourage, cherish, and welcome tears and all emotions
0: here. For sure. Um, I do have to say that I have to preserve my tears because I need as much as, liquid as I can get right now. Um, but let me set the scene for this episode. Imagine we're all hanging out. Gathered around a fireplace or a bonfire with warm blankets and a mug with your favorite warm drink. Mine is Jai. We're having chats, holding space for each other, holding space for our stories, and basking in the warmth of the wonderful
1: community around us. And with that image in your head, uh, let's remind you who these queers are. In case you don't remember me or this is your first time tuning in to the Three Chaotic Queers, my name is Nicole. And my pronouns are she, her, and they, them. Today, I'm joining from the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples.
0: Thank you, Nicole. And welcome back to the chaos, y'all. My name is Rabia. My pronouns are she, they, and I am so pumped for this Vent and Validate session. I am joining you all from the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people.
2: Hello again for the last time. My name is Sydney and I use they them and she her pronouns but today I'm having my co host refer to me by name. I am calling in today from the original lands of the displaced Huron-Wendat peoples within the region stewarded by the Chippewa of Georgina Island.
1: All right Uh, we are super excited to be answering and validating the questions that you our fellow listeners have left in our vent and validate form. We're really happy to have received all the questions and had the chance to hear from our listeners more directly.
0: So throughout this episode, we will be sharing some words of affirmation and responses to the different submissions we received. What we will share is definitely not something you have to follow through with. It's not advice that you need to take and apply to your life, but simply some related, affirming experiences and information that may help you. Also, just some quick discretion before we get started, we will be discussing some sensitive topics in-depth throughout this episode, including self-harm and internalized racism. If these topics are not for you, we encourage you to put your safety first and skip through those parts or the episode entirely. We will also be letting you know beforehand, um, like before we talk about those topics, so that you can skip over those parts because that option is also available.
2: Absolutely. Everybody engage in a way that feels comfortable and safe to you. And without further ado, let's move into our first question. So these are all anonymous submissions, and this one really tickled our heart. It says, I like girls a lot, and I wanted to know how I can flirt with them and have them notice I am flirting. I want a girlfriend to spoil, and then there are some little digital hearts. What do you folks think about this? Nicole, want to go
1: first? Yes, I do. Um, I love this question. Same anonymous person. Um, And my advice is perhaps a little out there. And like, if you're feeling super confident to like speak to this person, um, but I think honesty is the best policy. Do you think they look nice? You can let them know. Um, are you interested in them or you want to get to know them? You can also let them know. Um, I know this seems scary, but honestly, like the current precedent of like, hmm, let's just like stare across the cafe at each other without doing anything about it. Um, just isn't cutting it. Um, so I think communication is the best policy and human connection is a wonderful thing if you get, if you're so lucky to have it. Um, Also, um, I think your best bet at successful flirting is always consent. Um, It's not only necessary, but it also ensures that the person you're flirting with wants to be flirted with. Um, And also just like generally encourages like an asking before acting as a precedent between y'all in your like relationship or friendship going forward. Um, Yeah, so just make sure to not cross any boundaries that you may not have previously discussed with this person. If you're not sure of your relationship yet or where it stands, you can clarify it. Um, There's no such thing as asking for too much reassurance and over communicating. If that's what gives you clarity, go for it and do it. Um, Also, if it's warranted, the best way to know how people best receive love um, and care is asking what their love language is. It's always fun to know as well. So you can ask if it's like words of affirmation or quality time or physical touch or acts of service. Um, Yeah, there's tons of stuff on the Internet about love languages, and it's super fun to learn about. Um, So just something like a little thing that you can ask about. Um, Yeah, so that's it for me. What do you think, Rabia?
0: I think that was so adorable and I love your suggestions. Um, I would also like to share some tips. Um, In my personal opinion, I think that flirting requires intention, so it's really important to know what you want, what you don't want, what you like, and what you don't like. It's also important to know the type of relationship and connection that you're looking for, for example, long-term or short-term, dating for fun or for marriage, Um, do you want a friends with benefit or a sneaky link as they say it now, Um, or a girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, um... Obviously, those labels aren't as important at the moment um, because you can change that later on, but it's important to know what exactly you're looking for. And I know it sounds a bit scary, but you don't need to know all of the answers right away. But I found that once you're honest with yourself about what you do want in a relationship, it's a lot easier to communicate that and be honest with other people. I personally believe that in order to have a strong partner relationship, you need to have a strong base and foundation. So flirt and be an active listener. If you show someone that you're actively listening to what they're saying, they will see that you care and they might also want to build that strong connection with you. Lastly, it's totally okay if things don't work out. I know it might hurt, but you will heal and you will grow. And just keep in mind that, like Nicole said, consent is always important and needed in relationships. Even if the person does not like you back, you will still possibly have a friend or some fun, fun memories to look back on at the end. And with that being said, I will move on to the next submission. This person said, I want to drop out of school so badly, but my parents want me to finish this degree I don't even want or like. Sydney, what do you think about
2: this? Yeah, so I personally have had a little bit of a fluid path to finding my post-secondary degree. And that is super common in my experience of peer support work with post-secondary students. Um, So many people want to change programs or schools to complete a secondary degree after completing one that they didn't end up liking or just taking a leave of absence. So I personally took my degree on a part-time basis and then even took an extra year because my science degree was causing me some disability-related issues, but I am also planning on returning to the fall um, for an unrelated labor degree. So I do kind of understand how just confusing it can be from the ages of 17 to 26, trying to figure out your life so quick, especially with added pressures from families. Um, I personally didn't have as much pressure from my family because they both had skilled labor degrees and didn't believe that either university or college was necessary, but it was definitely something that I felt pressured from outside people to do and to pursue paths that weren't even intriguing to me because they seemed impressive or more valuable to society, um, which usually stemmed down to ableism and white saviorism. Um, But one of the most practical factors to evaluate when you're thinking about changing your degree path is to actually evaluate The finances. So I think it's pretty easy selling point, especially with your parents, if they are helping you fund your degree um, to say that, you know, if I don't like this degree, I'm going to end up completing it not to the best of my abilities. And then I might not even have the same market of opportunities available to me. I might end up having to do a second degree And it's honestly a lot cheaper to switch out in your second or third year than it is to stay and do an entire degree that doesn't make you happy um, and then completely restart. Think about the student loans. Those are not getting easier. They have not completely been expunged yet. So school is more expensive than it used to be. And I think that finances are definitely something that your parents can relate to if they are pressuring you to stay in it and also just like staying in a program you don't like will lead to burnout and it will minimize your joy um yeah what do you think Nicole?
1: yes 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 um completely agree with what you're saying sydney um i know from my personal experience i grew up um kind of being a victim to like my parents being like doctor, lawyer or nothing else. Um, Because, you know, they have provided the opportunity for me to grow up in this Western society with quote unquote, many different options, infinite options from that's their perspective. Um, So I did feel like I had to do a pre-med degree and go through with that. And it made me miserable and led me down a path that I didn't wanna go down. So if there's one thing I do know, um, don't do a degree for your parents because it never ends well. Um, it's very time consuming, energy consuming, and as Sydney said, money consuming to earn a degree. Um, yeah, but just to like validate you, um, the desire to press to impress um, your parents or to perhaps follow what they're saying is somewhat common. Um, there comes a time where the two of you will disagree. Uh, these conversations are super difficult. Um, But it's worth um, trying your best to try to um, make yourself comfortable. And that may include disappointing your parents Um, and letting go of the need to get their approval and forming your own convictions and decision making capabilities is super important. Um, It helps you you step into your own identity and kind of like get rid of their, your parents' voice in the back of your head. Um, And that's okay. You you are allowed to grow out of that. Um, It doesn't mean you need to completely abandon the values that they've instilled in you. Um, It just means that you have to sift through them and test which ones fit the future that you want to have for yourself. Um, On the other hand, dropping out of school is a serious decision to make. And there are many things that you could consider um, before totally committing to it. Um, So you can ask yourself questions such as, what are the consequences of staying in my current degree Um, or switching programs or dropping out entirely? Um, As Sydney was mentioning, you could take some time away from school um, and how long are you willing to spend in school entirely? Because, yeah, it's, uh, again, money and energy and time consuming. Uh, What do you want to do with your future? That's a big question. Um, And does that thing require a degree? And are there some resources in your institution that can help you make those decisions that you hopefully trust? And do you have a support system that you can just talk through um, about these issues? So whatever it may be, learning to look out for yourself and learn to disappoint your parents is inevitably something that you may have to do. Um, And I believe in you, you can do it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, having said that, we'll move into the third question. Um, This person asks, I want to know how to call my friend in. She says and does a lot of micro ableist things like saying crazy slash psycho or quote unquote, ha ha, I am OCD because I am a neat freak, end quote, which stigmatizes people who are. I am disabled myself and sometimes I can't even move and have to use my assistive device. When she saw me using it once, she said I'm being extra and didn't try hard enough. Um, So I'm just wondering, Robbie, what do you think of this? Yeah, thank you so much for um, sharing this question. Before I dive
0: into my answer, I do want to give a content warning for ableism, discrimination slash oppression. So if you um, don't want to hear this, please skip ahead and yeah. So to start off, I wanna say that I am so sorry you experienced this ableism, especially from someone you thought was a friend. I want to remind you that you do not have to explain yourself or your disability to anyone, especially if they are repeatedly being ableist. I hope that I can shed some light on what calling in is to support you in talking to your friend or anyone else that's in a similar situation. So what is calling in and how is it different from calling out? A queer disabled activist named Naklan Chen coined the term calling in and describes it as a means of extending ourselves to the reality that we will and we do fuck up. We stray... And there will always be a chance for us to return. Calling in in is a practice of loving each other, to allow each other to make mistakes, a practice of loving ourselves enough to know that what we're trying to do here is radical unlearning of everything we have been configured to believe is normal. I think this is a very beautiful way of understanding this tool because it centers the need for love, respect, and care when it comes to calling someone in. On the other hand, when it comes to calling someone out, that may involve assuming the worst of them or calling them out in a public space to hold them accountable. And this is most commonly used when um, people want to hold people in position of positions of power like politicians accountable. But when it comes to everyday people in our community that don't hold that type of power, it can often make them afraid of speaking up and it can also alienate them. So... When it comes to calling in your friend in this situation, you have to be mindful of the fact that this may involve you becoming vulnerable and also your friend becoming vulnerable. And this process can be very draining on your emotional energy and overall well-being. With that being said, ask yourself questions like, do I have the emotional capacity and space to call someone in right now? You can also ask yourself if engaging with this person will cause more harm, especially to yourself then good. You are never obligated to call someone in, so it is really important to know all of the different options that are available and also involved in the situation. For example, if you are not able to call them in, you can possibly ask another person, such as a friend or an ally, to help educate them. Or you can also call them in when you have space, um, but you can take a break when you need to and talk to them in a time where you feel more comfortable, more confident, and feel like you can actually use that time to connect with them on a one-on-one level. It's totally up to you and your capacity. So make sure you center caring for yourself because that should always come first. But when it comes down to actually calling in someone, one of my favorite rules of thumb is to criticize ideas, not people. In this case, you want to focus on the specific behaviors, which includes your friend's misuse of language such as crazy or psycho, as well as their other microaggressive comments that they made towards your disability. When discussing these behaviors with your friend, try to share how their behavior has affected you and or other disabled people that you may know. By centering the conversation on the behavior of your friend, you leave room for them to grow. They're not inherently a bad person and treating them as such can discourage them from can discourage them with shame. Brené Brown says that shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. So when you center the behaviors and the impact they had, They are able to have a better understanding of what they did wrong, and they can also leave that conversation knowing they can change in the future and in that moment. Another thing that you can do is challenge ableism together. Ask them questions to help them reflect on their ableism, such as, what made you think saying that was okay? What made, or what do you mean by that? Or even, have you ever thought about ability-related words in a critical way? These questions can help your friend start their self-awareness journey and also the process of challenging and unlearning the ableist biases that we have or most people have unfortunately internalized from a young age. And like I said, many people grew up, grew up hearing these words like dumb, crazy, insane, psychotic being thrown around like insults and words to mean something completely different. And oftentimes a lot of the people who use this language have the excuse of I don't know what to say if um. I'm not allowed to say this anymore, um, which is something I've heard for a very long time now. And back in my Tumblr days, I came across a post about ableism and language by Lydia X. Z. Brown. Their blog is called Autistic Choya, and this specific specific post goes into depth with a list of ableist terms, slurs, and phrases. Lydia breaks down the meaning behind many of these words and also provides a lengthy list of non-ableist words that can be used instead of the harmful words that people are using. So I would definitely recommend you check this out and share this resource to your friend so they can start integrating different words in their vocabulary instead of using harmful language that hurts yourself and others. I would definitely love to hear what y'all think. Um,
2: Yeah, I think that those were really good points about what calling in is and what it should look like and how to do that safely over calling out um, in situations where you want to foster community and not exactly um, alienate or hurt someone, um, or if you want to know their intents. Um, Two considerations that I've always practiced when uh, creating a space that is safe to call someone in is to be mindful of who else might be nearby um, because what is said during a call in can be triggering for those who have lived experiences. I have called in many people over my lives and I've seen them go nasty because people are very intent on holding on to their status as a good person and not um, admitting to harms that they might have caused. So really being mindful about where you're having these conversations to minimize the risk of harm to others around you, try speaking to that person in a private setting or space. And just like reiterating what Rabia said about having people who are not faced by those microaggressions leave the call in conversation Um, This is something that we called in our university peer support spaces as calling in your fucking people. Um, It was a loving thing. And it was one of the everyday ways that you can actually stand up against hatred by using your privilege um, to actually speak to somebody who is in a position of power and causing harm. So for example, a white person would be honestly, probably the most I'm trying to think of the word. White people should be taking on the labor of calling in other white people for their racist language the same way that non-disabled people should be calling in people who are non-disabled, who make ableist or sanest comments. Um, One that people can't seem to get over is the word stupid. Um, It's silly. (laughs) Even that, it's just not great, Um, but it's perfectly valid to ask other people to do that work. Um, And I hope that you have friends in your life that you trust and that you feel have that energy and that good understanding to lead those conversations. Um, And yeah, I also think that it is potentially a good idea to not overlook what they are saying about themselves in description here. I think that it is quite rude that they referred to your using an accessibility device as extra. There is nothing extra or special about the ways that we live our lives. It is completely rude when people call us extra for just needing, to use a device to be able to experience the same types of joy and pleasure that they do out in the world, to just live unapologetically. And you're already experiencing so many microaggressions every day in other places as a disabled person that, especially if you dare to work or go to school, um, life is just too cruel to be letting ableists into our inner circles that said, there may be a little bit of resonance and truth in what they said. Um, Don't completely overlook their statement about potentially having ADHD. You may want to try asking them, do you think you have OCD? I said ADHD or ADHD instead of OCD, my bad, folks. Um, But don't overlook people's comments about the ways that their brain works, because you might want to ask them, do you think it would be useful to get assessed? OCD. It might be something they're legitimately confused about and are feeling like maybe there is a barrier there and they don't have anybody else in their life to talk about. Because usually when people are saying these things, they're not in an environment that is inclusive, a disabled, chronically ill, neurodivergent, mad, or even aging people. So unfortunately, sometimes this language slips in when people are trying to reach out for help. And while it is violent. It is a microaggression and it should be called in. Um, it is not something that people who are late diagnosed, um, or have a late onset of an illness usually are prepared to address in the very second that they sense a symptom, um, or a characteristic of illness or disability. Just, yeah, showing a little bit of, um, kindness in that way maybe we can go on to question four for sure also thank you so much
0: for sharing that it was very very important to say and um, going into the next question it also is a disability related question um and this person said or asked how should i disclose my quote-unquote invisible disability to my boss I don't know how to bring it up in combo and also don't want to face difficulty from my peers for extra support.
2: Okay, I'm gonna jump in here. Um, I used to work for a disability service um, that focused on career access for post-secondary students and we used to talk a lot about the decision on whether to disclose um, your disability during the recruitment process or even during accommodation planning etc. So the decision to disclose your disability, whether it's visible or invisible to an employer, supervisor or coworker or teacher is deeply personal. And it relies on many, many factors, some of which might include the environment that you're in. So do you know about the experiences of others who have shared a similar situation to you? Do you know about other people who have disclosed and how their experience was in that and whether It seems as though the environment is one that is disability inclusive where you can really readily access accommodations. Um, But just like a practical tip, it's really shitty that unfortunately in Ontario, a lot of workplaces and schools don't actually provide you with a list of suggested accommodations. And the reason that they do this is because the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal mandates that everybody be directly involved in consultations during the development of an individualized accommodation plan. And this is to try to avoid workers being coerced into accepting insufficient accommodations. Like practically when they wrote this, I'm sure it sounded great, but honestly, it's really hard to be the person to come up with the accommodations when you don't even necessarily know everything that's going to come up at your job. Honestly, a lot of job descriptions are lacking. Um, and so, yeah, because of this, employers and schools were almost always a vibe putting the list out. And that means you got to go look it up. If you can, I would really suggest going to Reddit or Tumblr. I used to fucking love Tumblr <laughs> or Twitter for master lists on common school and workplace accommodations. And sometimes they even have templated accommodation plan worksheets that you can bring to your Um, employer and say, this is the outline process I would like to go through, and it will actually probably make them feel a little bit less stressed. Uh, And yeah, Google career access and transition services where you are, if you can, Uh, just like a general tip is to practice what you'll say with a friend or a pet, or even make out some jot notes, because honestly, it's not illegal to go into a meeting with a boss or an employer or anybody with jot notes. It's actually a great idea. Shows preparedness um, and shows that you are a great candidate for employment, Um, but also a little bit of a privacy thing here, because you mentioned that you don't want your um, coworkers to ostracize you. That is completely fair. And uh, in Ontario, you're not actually legally obligated to provide your employer with a diagnosis uh, or a list of symptoms or impacts to your quality of life. Um, So when you're requesting a form of accommodation, it can be actually pretty vague. One of my personal favorite lines from Student Accessibility Services at my university was, due to disability related concerns (laughs) concerns or reasons, I require XYZ. And I just want to like emphasize that disclosing in one situation, if you do decide to disclose that you need accommodation or if you do want to share the impacts to your quality of life, then disclosing in one instance should never mean that you have to widely disclose that in every situation. And Ontario employers are legally obligated to keep your confidentiality on personal matters such as accommodations, disability and illness status. Pregnancy, age, gender, indigeneity, citizenship, etc. However, the, the big butt in the room is when disclosing to your supervisor or boss or teacher, you may also want to consider explicitly stating that you do not wish for the information to reach your coworkers. Because although it's not right or it's not allowed, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm sure we've all been in a shitty workplace before um and with that I honestly I wish you luck if you want to ask more questions hit me up thank you so much Sydney that answer was
1: deeply informative and resourceful and um yeah I hope that it leads our fellow listener to yeah making that decision for themselves so yeah without further ado um, I'll read out the next question this person asks, I don't know how to be confident and love myself or my body in this white supremacist world. I hate that my fat brown body is seen as undesirable and unlovable unless I lose weight and lighten my skin. Rabia, what do you think?
0: Ah, I have so many feelings about this, especially... Um, feelings of resonating with you and your experience. And before I do begin, I want to give another content warning. Um, I will be discussing fat phobia, colorism, white supremacy, and colonial beliefs slash mindsets. And I want to start off by saying thank you for being vulnerable and honest. And I want to give you that same courtesy by sharing my experience, um, kind of coming to terms with my body and my skin and everything like that as well. So growing up, I absolutely hated myself and my body. I was darker skinned. I was chubbier and hairier than the others. And because of this, I was told to bleach my skin. Um, I was told to stay inside so I wouldn't get dark. And I was also told to go to the gym when I was 10. Who the fuck says that to a 10 year old? (laughs) Um, Someone who is very clearly insecure themselves and unfortunately was probably told the same thing growing up. And so because of this trauma, I was overcome by guilt and shame and guilt is basically the feeling that um, guilt is basically feeling bad about something that you have done and then shame is feeling bad about who you are or what you are. And so you should never have to feel shame about who you are, especially because it can paralyze your ability to experience the transformative world around you and also the transformative growth in your life. This shame definitely can prevent you from healing and that's very unfortunate and it can be a long process to unpack that shame and grow from it. So before I continue, I would like to share a poem by Sumaira Asgar named, or titled, Me and My Flaws. I used to carry my flaws on my shoulders, heavy and hefty with my strained back and bent knees. I trip sometimes on the thorny ground pricked my body, my soul. I used to taste my flaws on my tongue and spilled them on my lips. Sip after sip, I craved for death. I choked on how foul they were. I used to conceal my flaws behind a million masks, for they were ugly and horrific. I hid them beneath my skin, letting insanity creep along. I, with all my flaws, stood alone in dark. There I knew were fingers which victimized my flaws for all the vile around. Victimized my flaws for all the vile around? Oh, came the decisive moment. I tore off all my masks and put on my flaws with pride. I nourished them well and carried around. I gulped them down every day. Now that I will trip, my flaws will help me up. Now that I am bruised, my flaws will help me heal. Now that I am alone, my flaws will accompany me to eternity. Uh, When I read this poem um, a few years ago, I broke down crying because I felt the same. Like I literally felt the exact same. And I wasn't at the point where um, this person was towards the end of like reclaiming and kind of becoming powerful in my own body. But it really pushed me to begin that journey and begin that reflection process that I needed to take in order to find myself worthy and find myself beautiful and um I just want to say that I know your pain and I know that you might always have to live with it but you should never let it consume you or paralyze you Um, I made it this far because I was able to reclaim my body and my skin and also my voice and I was able to do this because I challenged and decolonized the beauty standards that I grew up with and I began challenging what was told to me and what I had experienced and although these are pretty much the same standards that are around me to this day, I I fight back and I always make sure that I'm using my voice to challenge the beliefs that people are trying to say to me or younger people in my community because it's not something that should be continued and the cycle really needs to end. And every day I try to remind myself that I'm here because of my body and so are you. Your body keeps you moving, it keeps you alive and it keeps you breathing. It's beautiful and your body is you. Every day I also try to remind myself of the Brene Brown quote, talk to yourself like you would talk to someone you love because if you're able to recognize the beauty in others and treat them with love and kindness, why can't you extend that same kindness to yourself? Our bodies have the power to heal and grow, but you need to be an active part of the process. You should work with yourself, listen to yourself, nurture and nurse yourself, and also your inner child who needed this love growing up. Honor yourself and this inner child that should have never experienced this pain because you deserve love, especially from yourself. I also recommend reading some books that share similar experiences, histories, and healing journeys. For example, The Embodiment of Disobedience, Fat Black Women's Unruly Political Bodies by Andrea Shaw. Um, Another book is Fat and Queer, an Anthology of Queer and Trans Bodies and Lives by Miguel Morales. And the last one is Hunger, A Memoir of My Body by Roxane Gay. These books are very powerful and can possibly help empower you in your journey of decolonizing beauty and bodies. And with that being said, I would love to hear what you think, Nicole.
1: Um, thank you so much, Rabia. Um, I, as you spoke about um, your journey, I I could really feel the growth that you um, had gone through and just the, the blooming, if if I would say, of just you know where you've come from and where you are now, and I think it's beautiful. Um, yeah, just wanted to just wanted to put that out there. Um, yeah, so for myself, I also um, resonate with this question. Um, so you're totally not alone. Once again, um, you have recognized that you have these beliefs. And that already comes from so much self-reflection. So I'd love to congratulate you on beginning this journey to, you know, considering that this thought process is harmful and that you want to uh, reverse that. Um, so the first thing I invite you to ask yourself is, where did this belief that your brown body is undesirable and unlovable come from? Um, uncovering where this belief stems from may allow you to begin understanding how to undo it. Um, I relate to this in that I remember like when I was young, my whole family told me that when I turned 18, they would fund, they would find the funds to get me like laser hair removal on my whole body and to give me a nose job in Lebanon because it's cheaper there. And this was just the way to, to go about your life and the progression of how you are as you grow up. And I I just accepted my fate. Um, And for me, I, I kind of grew up thinking that the, you know, for now these things are wrong with me, but eventually they will be fixed. And just that statement fixed um, is so incorrect and is just totally based in the Eurocentric beauty standard that um, has been ingrained into um, those who have, yeah, just people people's brains, I guess, um, It's speaking from personal experience again. It's really easy to be hyper fixated on your physical features um, when you know that doesn't fit that Eurocentric beauty standard. Um, It gets even harder when these insecurities are rooted and validated by those around you. Um, People, you know, make you're the butt of people's jokes. Um, These are microaggressions that you just grow up hearing and. You begin to internalize them and again adults uh, are subjected to that intergenerational racism and trauma and you know reflect those same insecurities on you so you you aren't wrong in in thinking these things about yourself in that you know the world is telling you these things but what i would like to tell you is that they're not true um yeah and Yeah, okay, moving on. Um, What I suggest that uh, you do is to just, you know, begin to think about decolonizing your relationship with the way that your body looks. You can ask yourself questions such as, um, what does beauty mean to you? Uh, What parts of you do you feel like you have to hide in order to feel or be beautiful? Um, You know, describe the messages you received growing up about your appearance, your grooming, and your hygiene. How does the media influence the way you see yourselves? Describe what's more most important to you. Are they your values, your family? Why are these things important to you? Um, if you are queer, how does your queerness affect the way you perceive yourself to be? And do you wish that you were a different size, color, gender, or ethnic background? Um, throughout history, so yeah, those are just some things that you can ask yourself to just begin understanding your mindset and where these these, uh, thought patterns have come from. Um, And just to reiterate that you are not alone. Uh, There are many uh, women of color who have taken the pain of um, feeling like they are not enough and have built movements around decolonizing uh, quote unquote beauty. Um, There are um, movements that have tried to address beauty as a political force. Um, For example, there's the indigenismo movement in Mexico. Uh, one of the icons was artist Frida Kahlo. Um, in her self-portrait, she painted herself dressed in pre-colonial traditional Tahua. I tried to pronounce this earlier, Tahuana clothes and hairstyles with visible facial hair and hair between her eyebrows. She also depicts her disability in the realistic ways that she saw herself. And so many people have described those artistic choices as being a radical rejection of white colonial and able-bodied beauty standards and serve as a symbol that represents uh, body positivity and the disability justice movements today. Um, I read an article by Leah Donella entitled, Is Beauty in the Eye of the Colonizer? Um, it describes how the activists and model Harama Akar has spoken about how her life has changed when she decided to stop shaving her beard. Um, she says, I feel a lot stronger and liberated to be who I am and to be and to accept who I am freely. I'm here as a woman who's wearing something that's supposed to be, in quotations, supposed to be a man's feature. Um, The body positivity movement and fat acceptance movements um, have also consistently pushed back on the idea that thin, young, white, able-bodied women are the epitome of beauty, Um, or that beauty should be uh, a precondition for respect to begin with, which is totally not true. Um, According to historian Nell Iron Painter, white supremacists create radical, not radical, White supremacists create racial categories to ensure that they were superior superior in all areas, including beauty. They not only wanted the people they called their women to be the most beautiful and their men to be the most virile. They wanted their countries to have the best politics. So they wanted to have everything to be better. Um and that includes beauty. Hence Eurocentric beauty standards are invented and imposed onto all colonies. Um, In order to decolonize our standards, we we have to aim to remove the blinkers that have been placed on our minds since birth. To make this happen, we have to educate ourselves on the structures of race. By this, we have to educate ourselves on how standards are conditioning and that there is no right way to look. That includes you. (laughs) And with that, Sydney, I know you have some book recommendations and some reading recommendations. Would you like to share them?
2: Yeah, so I'm not going to talk about my relationship to disordered eating because obviously this conversation is very much rooted in colorism as well, which I do not experience. I am probably a perpetuator of it many times, unfortunately. Um, but while listening to this and thinking about this, I pulled a couple of recommendations from my Empowered Body book list that I made, um, which includes The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Sonya Renee Taylor, um, and You Have the Right to Remain Fat by Virgie Tover. Uh, Virgie Tover also um, hosts Rebel Eaters Club, which is a podcast if you feel like listening in like you do here. Um, yeah, and um, with that, thank you both for talking very openly and honestly about your experiences and for providing the validation that was needed with this conversation. Um, we're going to move on to our last question. Um, this conversation is about um, self-harm or self-injurious behavior. So if you are feeling as though you cannot engage with this conversation safely, um, we fully encourage you to, you know, skip ahead a bit um, to the end and just keep yourself safe. So, our last question that we're going to address um, says content warning self harm. I've been having a lot of trouble feeling comfort- comfortable in my skin to the point I don't know who I am anymore. I self harm in many different ways so that I can feel anything other than disgust. I'm tired of not feeling ever comfortable with how I express myself in a way that feels safe or comfortable. And with that, I'm gonna open the floor to whoever would like to speak first.
1: I can jump in first. Um, Yeah, so to the person who asked this question, um, I'm happy that you felt comfortable to vent and open up um, and trust us with your story. Um, I want to say that here in our chaos triangle, if you will, um, you're not disgusting or unworthy because you self-harm. You are worthy of safety, care, and comfort. And I hope that um, going forward that you can one day embody that or partially or not at all. Um, (laughs) So um, just wanted to highlight that there are many reasons that folks may choose to self-harm um, as a survival skill to um, and as a response to the circumstances that life throws our way. And also just living in this world today where we wake up to tragedy after tragedy and the systems in which we live in that are made to just make us feel, well, that inevitably are just shitty <laughs> and not happy. Um, Yeah, it it makes sense why uh, one would perhaps choose to self-harm. It can, again, as I said, be for so many different reasons. Um, And traditionally, many of much of the available help for people who self-harm has been super shame-based, which is super sucky. Um, Perhaps this is because many people who uh, many people in society or who, those who don't self-harm um, see it as like an out-of-control act and therefore something that needs to be stopped and controlled. Um, however, when a person self-harms, uh, feels like they're safe, people are trying to control their behavior, it may drive them to uh, do it even more and in more do it in more dangerous ways. Um, so, you know, emergency or crisis intervention may force someone to do something that they're not ready for and can result in even more shame and increased reliance on behaviors that they have developed around shame and pain. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to extend a resource to you. Uh, it's called the Hurt Yourself Less Handbook. It's very lengthy, very exhaustive. Uh, It's written by the National Self-Harm Network in London in 1998. So it is a bit old um, in the policies that it outlines in the UK. Um, It talks a bit about the current policies and the the current, well, not current, the past policies and the past version of the DSM. But um, I find that um, the workbook material is super useful Um, and that it serves as a great trauma-informed free resource uh, to begin working to better understand your current coping mechanisms. Um, And sometimes self-knowledge is the most powerful tool to challenge the negative ways that we feel about ourselves. Uh, It also includes some basic first aid tools that can help you mitigate the the risk of further harm and make sure that you self-harm in a way that keeps you safe. Um, Do keep in mind that Uh, Thinking and working through self-harm is hard, time-consuming, and often triggering. Um, So taking your time and calling in trusted peers that won't report you to other people and don't make you feel ashamed of yourself, um, it can can really help and be really useful. So I'll definitely link, um, we'll link the workbook in the show notes. And with that, I'd like to ask... Rabia, um, if you have any thoughts about this question. Yes, I do. Also, thank you so much for sharing
0: that resource. I checked it out earlier and it is very, very informative and helpful. Um, and yeah, to the person who submitted this, I'm really sorry you have had trouble feeling comfortable in your skin. Um, I do wanna give a trigger warning. I will be talking about self-harm and um, also sexual violence. So feel free to skip ahead um, if you don't feel comfortable. Um, I do not want to share my own personal experience on this topic, but I do want to validate your choices and your experience. And I want you to know that you are not alone. Like Nicole said, there are many people who use self-harm as a tool for survival. And um, I actually found a study that goes over this by the Young Women's Empowerment Project. Um, They did a study called the Girls Do What They have to do to survive. And in the study, they explore that the different ways that women and girls fight back using resistance and also healing methods to become more resilient. Many of the participants were sex workers. They were also racialized and or queer. And um, one of the questions that the participants were asked was, how do you heal or take care of yourself? To which many of them responded that they take care of themselves through self-harm. Um, And so the the YWEP described this as self-harm resilience, as many of the participants actually identified that they were able to use self-harm as a way to take back control of their own bodies. Some other people also mentioned that it was empowering to them because they were hurting themselves as opposed to someone else hurting them, or it was empowering because they were able to prevent or stop dissociation. And basically a lot of the people that were participating in this study talked about how it can be soothing and healing in a way that gives them power back and gives them their agency back instead of having it taken away by other people who we might interact with in their sex work. Um, and so I wanted to share that because you were definitely not alone in feeling that in many ways, the only way you can feel something is through sex, um, self-harm. And before I hop off of this little rant, I do want to share some harm reduction strategies to um, give you some safer options when you are partaking in self-harm, or if you are partaking, not when, sorry. Um, These strategies are from the Youth Alcohol and Drugs Toolkit, as well as some uh, from my personal experiences and the experiences of some peers. So one of the tips is try not to self-injure while affected by alcohol and or drugs, You can also implement a self-injury reduction strategy if you would like to stop, such as taping the blades in a box so it's harder to access, or also reducing and restricting the severity of the injury. You can hand over the implements to a trusted individual, or you can also utilize less harmful types of self-injury. It's also really great to communicate with a trusted individual, such as a friend who has experienced self-harming but no longer self-harms, Um, or someone that you trust but has not self-harmed in the past to be your buddy, Um, obviously you have to have that conversation to discuss boundaries and consent when it comes to um, the relationship that you're having, when it comes to talking to them about your self-harm journey and if you're self-harming. And so Having this buddy is really important because when you're engaging in self-harm, you can let them know so that they can check in on you afterwards to make sure that you aren't in shock or that you haven't lost too much blood. And also in some cases, people are really comfortable with this buddy and the buddy's comfortable with them to the point where the person can be present in the same space while you are self-harming. So that might be something you want to try. Um, Another tip is to ensure that you receive appropriate first aid or medical care for your wounds by informing your trusted person um, after you have self-injured or also receiving appropriate first aid and medical care from a trusted health worker. I know in a lot of cases, it might be difficult to find someone that you trust, but there may be that option if you have it. And lastly, it's important to educate yourself about wound care because when you don't have a trusted individual and you don't have a healthcare worker, you need to be able to take care of yourself and your wound. So having um, different things like gloves, antiseptic bandages, and clean and safe um, blades might be really important to use, especially sterilizing them. And lastly, the last one that I have is no depth is quote-unquote safe and less deep is less risky. I hope that these harm reduction strategies can help you when or if you self-harm. Please remember that if you are having suicidal ideations and you have a plan that you are not alone and letting someone know can really help you connect with resources that may help you
2: in this experience. Wonderfully said, Rabia. I think that those suggestions are also very, very helpful for people who um, use sharps to self-harm specifically. Um, Self-harm in its many, many forms is often, in my experience, the most accessible form of suicide prevention that is available to us. And it is legitimately the only thing that kept many of my friends um, alive. And it is a very natural means of feeling control or experiencing some sort of positive um emotion in a world that is continually challenging us um so while i think it's controversial to many adults i am glad to see that our youth are finally starting to move away from policing folks who self-harm or self-injure and instead are offering support rather than punishment. Um, I've been providing self-harm related peer support for over a decade. And it is really definitely something that can be an indicator, most times is an indicator of a more deep form of hurt going on. And, you know, I think that it's important not to strive stray away from conversations about suicide. Um, suicidal ideation is very natural to experience as well and um, across different levels. And what has become the new level of crisis intervention is if somebody is actively suicidal, which means they have a plan and intentions. Um, So if somebody is talking about hurting themselves and then also talking about how They do have plans and intentions to end their life. Um, This might be something that requires a little bit more um, care, especially with those suggestions that Robbie and Nicole made about spending the night with a safer person. Um, And, you know, offering to discuss harm diversion plans or um, harm care plans outpatient and inpatient resources if that is something that they want and um, are hoping to explore, but also just really offering the space to people to chat. Um, and, you know, like, yes, you can stick around um, and ensure that they are safe. Just um, try to really prevent or try to really avoid making your friend feel as though you are severely <laughs> surveilling them because, you um, self-harming is very very common in so many different ways and it's not really helpful if you ostracize them um yeah so talking about proper wound and infection care sterilization and disposal of equipments less impactful ways of self-harming all great harm reduction strategies and it's a great step to take to talk about those even if it is the only step that you want to take and yeah, just remembering not to report people to uh, crisis or carceral services without asking them if that is something that would be helpful to them in this moment, because everybody has, should have the autonomy over where they are. And um, those spaces can be very unsafe for folks who are queer, disabled, racialized and or experiencing many other experiences, but I just can't even list at this moment. Um, So yeah, definitely a proponent of reduction strategies. And I think that that is a good step because it's your body and your choice.
1: And with that, I would like to thank my co-hosts, Sydney and Rabia, for embarking on this chaotic journey with me. Um, It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Um, That is all the questions we're going to answer today um so yeah before we wrap up we just wanted to share one last quote from our favorite author audrey lord um she said i want to live the rest of my life however long or short with as much sweetness as i can decently manage loving all the people i love and doing as much as i can of the work i still have to do i'm going to write fire until it comes out of my ears my eyes my nose holes everywhere until it's every breath I breathe. I'm going to go out like a fucking meteor. <laughs> I love it. Um, Here, Audrey Lorde embodies just what it means to be human. Throughout the length of this episode, we've discussed your personal stories, shared our own insight, validation, and advice. And the life wire that has run through this podcast miniseries from the start has been the importance of self and community, acts of resistance, and self-expression. We hope that you have been able to take something from this podcast series and from Audrey Lord's quote and move with graciousness and love into the next chapter of your life. And with that, for the very last time, we say, till next time,
2: take it easy, queer kin and chaos lovers.
1: This episode was brought to you by the Provincial Youth Ambassadors Program at LGBT Youth Line. Creators and co-hosts of this podcast are Nicole, Rabia, and Sydney. Audio technicians are Nicole and Umang. Graphic design lead is Rabia. Promotions team is Rabia and Sadia. Transcribers are Cameo and Sydney. Production support and creative mentor is Kumari. Logistics coordinator and interview support is Katrina. And finally, The free music sources from this podcast are from the Soundtrack Official Loops. Thank you for listening to the Three Chaotic Queers.